0: I was thinking I wouldn't try to run up those steps either after Danny talked about that. I had a time back when I was home for the holidays when I was going to school in Abilene and I tried to run up the steps. They were just over here and they were hardwood floor, waxed, and I had a new pair of leather-soled shoes and did a face plant up on the platform as I went up and I thought, nope. Not a good, you know, everybody thought I died or something. <laughs> uh, all right, we want to start out with a bit of a review uh, from yesterday uh, before we move on. Uh, I, I like to have lessons that are self, you know, that stand on their own. But yet, sometimes you want to try to link some ideas together, which were Going to do tonight. Uh, We introduced the book of Galatians last night, and that was a fairly uh, broad. You know, we talked about it being referred to as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Uh, Some refer to it as uh, Martin Luther's book. You know, like Martin Luther loved Galatians, and uh, his commentary on Galatians is a really, really uh, interesting thing. Uh, the letter uh, to the churches of Galatia uh, which was designed to deal with the issue, as we talked about, of Judaizing teachers. That is, uh, Jewish Christians who are telling Gentile Christians that you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be Christian. Believing in Jesus is not enough. And you can imagine the problems that that would create in the church. And so, as Paul is trying to unravel these issues, uh, that one of the things that he gets into is a discussion about faith and works of the law. Now, I mentioned last night that in the book of Galatians, the word works is used ten times. Four of those are not relevant to our discussion, but six of those. Paul uses the expression, works of the law. He's talking about obedience to the law of Moses, you know, the Old Testament, and showing some very important things about that. Uh, And so there's a contrast that is made and needs to be made between obeying the law of Moses and obedience. Uh, And so he makes the the point of, uh, you know, and I think, and I I mentioned that uh, as you start going through New Testament books, and I meant to kind of suggest that that might be a good homework assignment for you, is to go through the various letters and look where Paul, Peter, James, John, uh, all, in speaking to their audiences, lay a, a found work, a groundwork for the idea of living by principle rather than law. Uh, That Christianity is not a rule-based faith. We follow a faith-based. And one of the things that makes that very important is that uh, if you think about living by principle, and over the the years in talking with people, especially uh, teaching and counseling new Christians, Often they will come to me, and I know they—you know others will have this experience, they'll come and they'll say, well, is it right or wrong for me to do this? And rather than give them a simple answer, try to steer them to the idea of understanding what it is that they are dealing with and to try to find the principle that they really need to be looking for that you know if you go through life with this you know everything is right or wrong idea and trying to look at everything that way it becomes very very difficult and very very frustrating and so teaching people to listen to and look for the principles that we live by for example you know we talk about the great commands we just sang the song didn't we you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to expand on that in terms of the Old Testament view, look at the Ten Commandments. The first four really relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. Not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The fifth one honor your father and mother. And that becomes a transition into the second command of loving your neighbor. You know, not don't kill. I mean, that's a nice thing to do to your neighbor, not to kill them. <laughs> don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. You know, those become some very definite don'ts, don't they? But if you look at the way Paul puts it in Romans, he says, well, look at it another way. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Well, there are a lot of wrongs I could do to my neighbor that aren't on that list of the last five commandments, aren't there? But if I'm looking to live by principle to do what's right and to do good to my neighbor, then that opens a whole new set of doors for me. Sometimes these people will say back to me as I'm trying to teach them the idea of living by principle and I don't complicate it by saying that that's what I'm doing but I don't say oh you need to live by principle you know but just to to try to help them shape and start making good decisions uh, sound decisions for the life they say it would be so much easier if God would just give us a list of what we should and shouldn't do And you may have said that at some point. I think I did. Because it seems awful complicated to have to decide all these things that are part of our lives. But, is it really? Now, last night, I asked you to remember a number. And that number was... 613. Now, I had somebody come up to me afterward, Richard Stoughton, and Richard had picked it up right away. And I know Graham was on the Internet. (laughs) And he Googled it. And he came up tonight and he'd found the answer. All right. Now, I want you to think about that, because what that amounts to is, in Judaism, there is a garment that Jewish men wear. It has four corners on it. And on those four corners, there are tassels, and that's what the picture is on the left there, of two of the tassels on that garment. And on that garment, there is a combination of 613 strings that are all wound together in the four tassels and knots. And there's a symbolism to the knots and to the strings, and there are blue strings in there. We'll read a passage in just a minute. 613. One of the things that's interesting is if you look at the Wikipedia page, it will tell you that this all has to be created with purpose. And I thought, okay, how do you do something like that without purpose, but but the idea is that you have an intent in what you're doing. And so you're doing it with your mind very carefully as you create the tassels on this garment. Every one of the 613 represents what the, what the Jews call a mitzvah, which is a command of the Torah. And if you Google it, you will find that there are web pages that will list all 613 commands. Now, I'd like you to think about what it would be like to have a religious belief that you had to keep 613 commands. And if you start looking through those, you'll see those relate to not just morality and God and worship, but diet, sanitation, There's just a whole raft of things. How many of the 613 do you think you could remember? Don and I have four kids. Each of our four kids is married. So that gives us four kids-in-law. And in total, we have six grandchildren. I cannot remember all those birthdays. How would I ever remember 613 commands that I was expected to keep as part of my religion? Oh, now we're not going to cooperate and we're going to go to sleep. All right. Uh, And we're going to read from Numbers in just a minute, but the origin of the tassels comes from Numbers 15. And then they're mentioned again in Deuteronomy 22, just in one verse where it says to have tassels from the four corners of your garment. And in Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus talks about the Pharisees who like to have long tassels so that they can be seen. And you think, what does that have to do with what God intended with these. So, Numbers 15, 37-41. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You'll have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will... Remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. We have a very interesting thing here. God instructed them to make the tassels and to use the tassels with the blue cord in them to remember all of the commands of the law. Did you see a 613 in there? Did you see tie knots in there? It's kind of a reminder that where there are 613 commands, that where human beings are involved, and we see this in the Jewish faith, that there's a larger body of tradition. The Jews evolved over the centuries of what they called a hedge around the law. The idea being that if you didn't cross the hedge, you wouldn't break the law. Jesus pointed out, though, that when the problem with that is that when you create extra traditions, that you may not be violating one part of the law, but you may be violating another. You know, so he uses the idea that that if somebody uh, dedicates what they have to God and their parents are in need and they say to their parents, well, I can't help you because I've dedicated everything I have to God. And Jesus says, so because of your tradition, you break the law of God. So imagine... 613 commands multiplied by how many? Somebody once suggested this years ago that I, I read this that the actual body of Jewish tradition, if you stacked up the you know books of it, that it would go floor to ceiling. You think it, God should create a simple list? <laughs> a, There is no simple list of do's and don'ts, is there? That living by law is really the hard thing for us to do. See, the problem of law is not that law fails us, but that we fail the law. I want to spend a little time with Romans for a little bit. So in Romans 7.14, Paul says the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So right immediately, he sees a conflict between the nature of the law as God's revelation and the nature of himself and other human beings. And so verse 15 is one of those verses that I think we all understand. Where Paul says, I don't understand what I'm doing or why I do it. You ever get that feeling? Parents, your, kid, your child does something, and you go in and say, why did you do that? I don't know. They just did it. We do things as human beings, and sometimes when we do, we're not concerned or thinking about the right and wrong. And Paul is, is really acknowledging a frustration here that the good I would do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. I think we understand what Paul is going through. Oh, we're having fun tonight? Okay. So, in Romans 7, 7 to 12, Paul establishes some things. we're just going to summarize the or the ideas here. Number one is that the law identifies sin. Paul says, I would not know what it is to covet... I wouldn't know that coveting is wrong if the law didn't tell me. You know, there's that command of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. You know, you can think about it. I didn't know it was wrong to sit there and wish I had what somebody else had. But the second part of the problem that he identifies is that sin uses law to tempt. I thought about hanging a sign on the back door that said, wet paint. Don't touch. I always love going to a public place and seeing where they've put up a sign like that, where they've been painting, and it says, don't touch, wet paint. And see how many fingerprints there are in there? Why? Because human beings have this nature that when somebody tells us not to, we do it. When there is a command or a law telling us not to, it becomes an issue or a problem for us. So, Paul, coming to the end of chapter 7, as he's talking and thinking about this struggle he has with his inner self and his outer self says what a wretched man that I am. The conflict between his inner desire to live for God and the ever present reality of sin I really appreciated Randy's confession this afternoon. I mean, many of us as guys have to acknowledge that we've had and continue to have struggle with anger and temper, don't we? I think sometimes it's because of two things. One, we have too much adrenaline and two, we watch too much hockey. But we are struggling. We, we don't want to be that way. You know, like Randy, I decided when I was young, I had a really hot temper. I, I found myself sometimes, you know, as a teenager going to Christian camp and punching out guys. Not a good plan. Especially if one of them is the camp director's son. But we are torn by our physical natures, by our desires, by our attitudes, sometimes by our hormones, right? And so Paul realizes that he is caught in this horrible trap between the two. And temptation and shame leave me trapped in guilt and shame. There is nothing worse than the feeling afterward that I lost it. I shouldn't have done it. I said something, or even worse, I acted out in ways that were totally inappropriate for me. And I think most of us know that feeling Of guilt and shame, of if you might even want to call it failure, after we've done something. And so Paul completes that thought, What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, it almost sounds like he's getting suicidal, doesn't it? Like I've got to get out of here. I'm trapped with a mind that wants to serve God and a body that's going rogue on me. So, those who know me and when I speak know that I really do not like the chapter division sometimes. This is one of those. because I wish we didn't suddenly have you know, this, this unnatural barrier here that says chapter eight. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. You know what I've talked with people, Christians who have sometimes failed big times, sometimes are hurting because they they feel like they have just blown their eternity by behaving in a very unchristlike manner. And they feel like there is no way that God could ever accept them. There are two passages that I love reading with them, 1 John 1 and Romans 8. There's therefore, you know, I and actually start at the end of, of chapter 7, because you know they identify. Yeah, I I I know what Paul's saying here. <laughs> What a wretched man I am. There's got to be something else in here before Paul can say that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there's something that we have as Christians that is greater than the concept that we as human beings have of law. Paul says that the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We have a very pronounced sense of justice. You know, as Christians, because we have such high standards, because we believe in righteousness and good, we have high expectations of ourselves. And so we feel like and I've had people say this, that they feel like they would be happier after they have messed up if God would just go splat because they feel like they've deserved it. And they say, how can Paul say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So he goes on to explain that. For, the, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son to the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. You know, we talked about the idea last night that we do not have the ability to undo what we've done. You know, we talked about that, those good old days where you had a piece of paper and you had a pen, and there was no whiteout. And so, sometimes at the end of a stick pen, you would have an eraser. That's what they called it. It was like a little piece of sandpaper. And all you could do is erase the spot on your page created by your pen by putting a hole in it. You cannot do it. And Paul talks about the idea in Galatians and you notice there's a lot of similarity between Romans and Galatians and even Colossians in the the discussion. That righteousness justification that declaration that God gives to his people that says you're not guilty not that we deserve it not that we earn it but that God gives it because as Paul is saying here God did this by sending his own son but what Jesus has done is purchased for us forgiveness justification eternal life And so, Paul goes on, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So let's go back to Galatians and what I want to call reframing the law in terms of how it's approached in Galatians. So, to the Jews, the law was the most important aspect in their relationship with God. I mean, as you read through the Gospels, that becomes abundantly clear, doesn't it? That everything is about the law. And so when they come to Jesus and make accusation, you broke the law. Well, no, you broke our tradition. But they wouldn't admit it that way. But they're forgetting something they're forgetting the relationship between the law of Moses and their forefather Abraham. You know, they would all admit to being Abraham's descendants. First of all, I mean, that's interesting how sometimes in talking with Jesus and as things get a little too close in what he says, they say, well, we have Abraham as our father. Okay? So it's like in Galatians, because Paul's dealing with Jewish Christian teachers and trying to straighten out the mess they've created. Let's think about this. The promise to Abraham, Paul says it, the promise was made to Abraham 430 years before the law. For almost four and a third centuries, Abraham and his descendants lived in relationship with God without the law and in fact abraham who was not israelite not jewish israel think about it israel was his grandson so israel hasn't even been born yet And Israel's 12 sons that become the nation of Israel, they are only the fathers. That's going to take 430 years for this to really become a nation. And how much longer after that before they start becoming known as Jews? So, the place of the law, Paul shows in Galatians, Isn't quite where the Jewish teachers and the Judaizing teachers have it. The law was between the promise, 430 years later, and Christ. So, the promise is God to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. The Jews seem to have had an interesting way of reading what we call the Old Testament. Expressions like all nations kind of get, you know, when you have a certain idea in your mind, when you hear something, you hear it that way. And so it almost becomes the Jews of all nations. You know, there are two wonderful prophecies in the Old Testament that are are almost identical, that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the hills, and all nations shall flow to it but that seems to have gotten read as the Jews of all nations. Well, Paul is saying, no, hold on there. The promise was that all nations, not just the Jews, would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Therefore, the law was And you're probably thinking about all the different translations you've heard through your life schoolmaster, guardian, to bring us to Christ. And that makes a whole lot more sense when you understand it that, that this was something in between the promise and the Messiah, it was not permanent. You know, you think about the idea of, you know, families hiring somebody to look after their children. Can you imagine you're talking to somebody and they tell you, well, I've got to go home and and, and let the nanny go. Looking after our children. Oh, you got kids. How old are your kids? Oh, they're 35 and 40. What are you doing with a nanny still looking after 35 and 40-year-old kids? They're not kids. They're adults. You know, Paul's point was that that history, that the nation, that the prophecy and promise would be fulfilled. There are some other arguments it gets into and ideas, but I don't want to take the time to go into those. But now, that The promise is being fulfilled. He says, you're justified by faith. You're children of God by faith. It's not your biology. It's not who your parents, you know. And and Jewish people were very proud of their lineage. And and many times they could recite, you know. And I think that makes sense when you look in the Bible. You know, and you see the, the genealogies that are there. They're proud of those. That was their pedigree. I don't know if you've ever had a a purebred dog that came with a a pedigree. Well, see, the Jews were like that because they saw that, you know, their ancestry counted. Well, Paul says, you know, I had all the pedigree whatever gain i had i count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord doesn't matter who i am where i come from doesn't matter whether i'm jew or greek or slave or free male female it's christ that's all that matters and so our lives are based on grace as christians not Rule or shame. I mentioned last night that book that we had for our young people's class, Do's and Don'ts for the Christian. And, you know, I think that really warped us for a long time because we thought Christianity. And, and over the years, I've talked with people who, as young adults, say, I don't like Christianity because there are too many rules. And I say, name one and they look at me like huh well tell me about these rules that you think and they start going down mentioning rules and if I said they are household rules not Christian or church rules See, moms, dads, grandparents, we all know the experience that when you are bringing up children, you are trying to teach them values, you're trying to get them to understand, and they're not quite ready to grasp the idea of principle, and so we, when they're little, kind of give them some pretty strong absolutes, don't we? Don't hit your sister. But as they get older... We begin to teach them the principles so that they can take the values that lie behind right and wrong, learn how to love other people, how to do good for them. The Rules don't come from the church. The rules have to come from the home to maintain order and try to civilize the little monster. No, I. (laughs) Those that know that my kids, we had four very great kids, they had their times. But we are proud of our kids because they learned that concept of living by principle. And our kids sometimes befriended people that no other kids would. And Dinah and I are just thrilled sometimes when we hear about some of our grandkids are doing the same thing. One of our granddaughters has got quite a reputation at school for accepting kids, challenged kids. She doesn't even notice the difference. But she just accepts them as people. So we, have to recognize the difference between the rules that may have been communicated to us and following Christ. And to do that, I want to touch on two more passages before we close. One of them is from Colossians 2 20 to 23. I love this passage for a lot of reasons, and I can't explain them right now. But Paul says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why is though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Doesn't that sound like, sounds like a parent, doesn't it? But Paul's kind of referring that in the religious sense. To the Jewish training of those things. You don't touch things that are unclean. You don't associate with people who are unclean. It was very strongly rule based. So why, if you died with Christ or the elementary principles of the universe, do you submit to rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. So, if somebody's concept of Christianity is a list of rules, all those things, you know, going back, you know, there ought to be a lot, you know, like, yeah, God's told us all these things you shouldn't do. Maybe something's off. Maybe the direction is not going the way that it should. Does that mean I go out and get drunk? No. But it means that I learn. to control my life in a way that gives glory to God. And I'll tell you what, me lying on the floor here, blotto, is not gonna glorify God. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And so that tells you he specifically has a religious inclination here. And you think over over the centuries about all the things that have been done in the name of, quote, religion that are extreme. Practice of asceticism, the severe treatment of the body. Somehow thinking, this is going to help me get control over sin? No. Not even part of it need to understand that to get control over sin, to deal with the problems of my life, needs to come to my heart, right? It's not the external. It's the internal. And so it's learning to live by those principles. Uh, the other passage I want to look at very briefly is Galatians two nineteen and 20. Uh, and I think this is kind of a good way for us to close this up. Uh, Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, and Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want you to think about the idea as we close about a religion of 613 laws or a faith that can be expressed in two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself.